0: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman-Newfield. In Purgatory Citizenship, Reentry, Race, and Abolition, published by University of California Press in 2023, Calvin John Smiley explores the lives of people who were formerly incarcerated and the many daunting challenges they face. Calvin John Smiley is an associate professor of sociology at Hunter College uh, at the City University of New York. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, To get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
1: Absolutely. So again, thank you for having me uh, on the show. And uh, this book came about in a, in a somewhat serendipitous way um, at the time or rather a little bit more about me, as you asked, um, I'm originally from New Jersey. The book takes place in New Jersey. Um, when I was in college myself, I had gotten into more what we would call kind of left wing or more radical politics. And when you start looking at the histories of, uh, folks from the civil rights era, the black power movement, other kind of, uh, liberation struggles, particularly in the United States, um, oftentimes people end up in one of two places, uh, either in a grave or in a, prison cell and so i had become really interested and intrigued with the u.s prison system both from a kind of academic intellectual level um but that also then helped me um articulate some of the own my own uh experiences with my father who had been incarcerated when i was a kid um, uh, and kind of understand like okay, why did this happen, what was going on in his personal life, what led him to the decisions and actions that he made that then ended him up in prison. So there was all of those things that were happening. I then got involved with um, the anti death telling movement, because I was living in Pennsylvania at the time, working both locally with uh, certain organizations in the Lehigh Valley, and then actually becoming the statewide abolition coordinator for Amnesty International, which we were lobbying to get the death penalty abolished in the state of of pennsylvania um i had then gotten into my phd program and i knew going into my phd program that i had wanted to do something around criminal justice prisons mass incarceration Um, and so that was in 2009 when i got into my phd program the following year uh or in 2010 Uh, like I said, kind of the serendipitous moment was uh, a couple of things happened. One, uh, on a professional or academic level, you had Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow that was released, which became a New York Times bestseller. And as I always say, it it really moved the conversations out of the ivory tower into the dinner table where you had folks who may have never really – talked about, discussed, debated American prisons. And now that became kind of a, a central topic in, in many folks' uh, lives. And, you know, she also really articulated this idea of like mass in prison than mass incarceration. It was also the year that uh, the Bureau of Justice Statistics released that 2010 was the first year since they had been collecting data that more people were released from prison than were entering prison. And this was on the heels of America reaching its, its zenith in 2008 and 2009 with over 2.4 million people incarcerated. So those were all things kind of happening that made me start thinking about um, where I would go with my with my research for my doctoral program. This still wasn't fully fleshed out, but I kind of knew that it was, again, going in that direction. Uh, but 2010 was also the year that my father re-entered my life after about a decade Um, of not being in in contact at all. Like I said, when I was a kid and as a, as a early teenager, he, he had been incarcerated and then he had, we had, you know, had a falling out and then we got back in touch or he got in touch with me and, you know, part of our own, uh, reconciliation was kind of discussing his, his incarceration, his reentry, and having those conversations were really important. Um, from both a kind of, again, intellectual, as well as a, uh, a father son dynamic, like, you know, what led to those, to those, uh, to those things that happened in his life. And so as I write in the book, you know, after he and I had a, had dinner one night, he had said to me, you know, I should really introduce you to a friend of mine. And, you know, this friend, um, who I mentioned in the book as, uh, Wadi Dar, um, was a guy who my, who my father had grown up with in Newark. Um, was kind of like a big brother to my father, right? And even though they were only about 11 months apart in age, you know, um, my father's friend had been in the streets a lot longer. So, you know, in terms of like street age, he, w- he was much older um, and, and, you know, tough and and protect my father and made sure my father went to school. Uh, you know, my father had gone to, to college on a football scholarship. He actually finished college himself. And, you know, he attributes a lot of that to, you know, being a kid and when he wanted to go in the streets, you know, this 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 older brother of sorts was making sure that my father stayed in school. Um, Mr. Daw himself had been incarcerated in his life, also struggled with substance abuse, um, you know, similar to my father. Um, and so my father was like, you know, you really need to meet him, you need to talk to him. I think he can help you think about these these ideas a little bit more. And so, you know, I I was like, Okay. And so my father gave him Um, My phone number, and I get this phone call, and it was this very, you know, kind of raspy voice guy, you know, saying, Hey, nephew, your your father said we should talk. Uh, Why don't you come down to our office and and, and we can chat? And I was like, Okay, like when? And he's like, Come down tomorrow, like 10 a.m. or something like that. It was so very quick. And I remember being like, Oh, okay. And I remember like, you know, looking up the train schedule, going from where I was living in Harlem, taking NJ Transit over to Newark. It was Mr. Dar had worked at a reentry organization working in, in, in the community. And so I got there and, uh, you know, we had a, we had this conversation and he was like, so what do you want to know about reentry? And he started telling me all these different things that the organization does, what he does. And at some point, um, he, he was like, uh, what do you, what do you do? And I had explained like I was getting my PhD and he like cut me off He goes, you're going to be a doctor. And I was like, yeah, you know, yes, that's the goal. And he, and he was like, All right. And then he, he, he got me up. We took a tour of the office and everything. And then we ended up in the kind of main conference room where there was, uh, about four, four black men sitting there. And he said, he looked at the group. He goes, this is my nephew. And he put his very large arm around me. And he said, this is my blood. This is my kin. Uh, I'm going to let him lead group today. And, uh, And like I said, that's how I say it in the book, that's how my, 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 my entry into reentry started was with kind of leading this group. And, you know, and, and so for the next three and a half years, I had volunteered at this community-based reentry organization in, in downtown Newark, where I shadowed some of the staff, where I uh, ran um, or facilitated, I'll say, uh, weekly groups. Um, I did tabling at events I worked with some folks one-on-one in terms of like resume building or other kind of uh, career assessment stuff and then I ended up doing interviews and focus groups with a number of the individuals over the three and a half years I was there and so and so that really um, became the basis of this book which then turned into my dissertation which then you know led to more work in the field of reentry and and. and, and even doing some co-writing with uh, a very dear colleague of mine, Keisha Middlemass at Howard University, where there were things that we were picking up on in terms of like clothing and the, and the necessity of clothing and particularly weather appropriate and work, work, work appropriate clothing that guys needed. Um, and so the book for me was like the full circle, right? Everything from the start of an idea, to a dissertation, to articles, to, uh, you know, uh, a book, right. And, and, having this come out was really, um, uh, important. I didn't realize how important it was until, until I actually had it done that, you know, for me, I think it was, you know, being able to kind of close out that, that, that site of, of research that I was doing. And so, um, yeah, like I said, my father was a, a native of Newark. I grew up in Jersey, a little bit South of that. Um, and so, To be able to write a book on, you know, uh, a major U.S. city, but a major U.S. city that um, doesn't necessarily get the same kind of uh, attention as like an L.A., a Chicago, and New York City. Um, But the fact that it is New Jersey's most populous city, the fact that Newark has its own history and its own right that, you know, for many years has been seen, particularly outside of Newark, as a stain, as a kind of Um, criminalized black city um, when Newark has so much more to offer. But I think part of what I hope I did in the book, at least in the beginning, is kind of contextualize, right? Like how did these folks who I speak to in the book, who are from Newark or from, you know, adjoining areas, how how did being from this community impact their lives? That was almost exclusively outside of their own doing right and kind to, trying to think through kind of the structural violence and structural inequalities that lead to this idea of mass incarceration and, and imprisonment and then the daunting task as as you put it so beautifully in the in the beginning here that daunting task of what is re-entry especially in a system that really hasn't thought through re-entry and very much has left it up to both individuals, nonprofits, and just kind of other do-gooders to to try to help um, folks make that make that journey back.
0: Right, right. Well, thank you for for setting the stage like that. I really appreciate that. Uh, We're going to come back to Newark, uh, um, sort of the the specifics about the the city of Newark and how it impacts um, uh, your research and the lives of the people you look at. Um, But I wanted to also just lay down a couple of more little pieces before we get to that. Um, You write that, quote, re-entry is an extension, not a termination of the carceral continuum. Uh, What do you mean by that?
1: So often I think that when we watch films and movies or uh, think about someone getting out of prison, we often paint this picture that you do the crime, you do the time, right? That's kind of a colloquial phrase that we hear. And in fact, if that colloquial phrase was true, then the book that I wrote, wouldn't need to exist, right? Because (laughs) what essentially happens is you so-called do the crime, you do the time, and then you continue to have perpetual punishments that succeed that time that you did. And so re-entry is not simply ending one's criminal justice involvement, but just a new iteration of it. And, and we see that that new iteration shows up in a variety of ways. It shows up in post-incarceration traumas, right? As we know, being in prison, uh, being locked up, confined in these ways can have both emotional, psychological, and physical tolls on a person. It shows up in the ways in how people are both legally locked out of certain Um, aspects of life in which others might not or which others might take for granted. So where you can live, what types of jobs you can have, engaging in the political process. Um, Do you have parental rights or all things that can be legal obstacles in, in, in this kind of, you're done with prison, quote unquote. And then there's the kind of social aspects and social barriers that people might experience. And that can do with anything from rekindling relationships with former partners, with your children, with your community in general, creating new partnerships with potentially new romantic uh, engagements. The kind of ever-present stigma that is associated with the idea that you've been incarcerated um and so all of those are what i am arguing that reentry is certainly not the termination but rather the continuation and the term carceral continuum is not a term i created there's others who, who have written and, and talked about it you know uh the first person who always comes to mind when i think about it is uh carla shedd at georgetown writes a lot about the carceral con- continuum and the carceral continuum is if we think about time, right, we often t- think of time as kind of this linear, you know, from point A to point B. But what exactly happens in the carceral continuum, especially for folks who are born into low income neighborhoods in urban areas with all of the other kind of structural violence of over police presence, et cetera, is that this carceral continuum doesn't go on a linear pattern, but has a like a cyclical nature, right? So you go from A and then loop right back to A. So we see that from early ages, um, the ways in which schools in certain neighborhoods have a much more disciplinary and reactionary policing method where there might be metal detectors or police dogs or, you know, violation of a student's kind of Autonomy of going through their bags, et cetera, to the um, recreation that's even in these communities. So going back to Carla Shudd's work, she, she writes in in her book about in the in the park in the local parks uh, recreation uh, playground jung- jungle gym area. There is something that's labeled jail right on the on the literal like contraptions that children can play with. So you know you can be locked up in jail in the park. Then there's the kind of inadequacies of housing and especially if you live in public housing where police, particularly here in New York City, can do vertical sweeps. Right. The police can kind of enter these buildings because they're, you know, they're they're state owned, they're public, they're public housing. Um, You have uh, inadequate health care and less options in terms of access to food and access to um, um, leisure. And all of this creates this cycle where, you know, we see people ending up in the prison and then they get out. They have less access and resources and then they end end up back in. And again, becomes this kind of perpetual cycle.
0: Right. And speaking of, of, of this cycle, um, uh, if we could just put maybe a, um, a sense in terms of the numbers uh how I mean you you touched on this before but just to, to highlight this for a moment uh approximately how many Americans are currently incarcerated and how
1: many uh, leave uh prison each year right so then so the newest numbers that I've seen now is that it's right under two million people uh, at the time when I was writing this book it was uh a, a uh, about 2.3 million. And in uh, at that time the Pew Research Center had said that was roughly one in 31 American residents was under some form of criminal justice supervision, which meant you know, uh, incarcerated, on parole, on probation. Um, and statistically, on average, in the United States, um, the most recent day, data that's come about what we call recidivism, the idea of being rearrested or reincarcerated says that people who've been uh, system impacted, meaning that they've been uh, incarcerated, uh, uh, have about a 67% chance of being rearrested or uh, reincarcerated within the first three years. And so we do a really dismal job at preventing people from going back to jail. We do a really uh, amazing job, and I mean that very facetiously, but we do an amazing job at putting people in prison. When it comes to individual states, um, each state has its own kind of numbers. In more recent years, New Jersey has actually cut their recidiv- recidivism rates uh, down to about 30%, and that's, that's uh, you know a nod to uh, a lot of the things that have happened. But uh, where I would critique that is, is that even though the, the the numbers have shrunk, the populations that are still most affected by incarceration in, in New Jersey specifically still tend to be low-income urban uh, people of color, mainly Black and Hispanic residents.
0: Right, right. And um, just to, to, again, step back a bit, you're uh, um, study focuses on, re- on a reentry center in New Jersey. And you already mentioned that, uh, you know, a little bit about your father's history and how your father connected you to his close friend uh, who's running this center. And I'm just curious, you, you spoke in your book uh, a bit about this. And I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about um, what, what scholars sometimes refer to as a person's a researcher's positionality, their relationship to their study, and in particular, I'm curious how the people that you encountered in the reentry uh, center in Newark, how did they respond to your presence? What did they think of you? Uh, you know, did they see you as as uh, uh, connected to this story? Did they see you as an outsider, kind of peering in? Uh, you know, how, how did that work out?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, um, and I can talk about it for a, a long time. <laughs> I think I think that initial that initial introduction that my father's friend gave to me set the precedent, right? You know, this was a man who I'd met literally two hours prior and had known for about twenty four hours prior. But the fact of the matter is, is that when he introduced me to these men, he put his arm around me, so there was a sense of physical touch, so there was a level of intimacy. And he made the statement that this is my nephew, this is my blood, this is my kin. And so in the world of the streets and, and you know, in, in certain, you know, that, that, that holds a lot of weight. Here is a man who is very well respected, both in the work that he does in the community, as someone who is working in reentry. He's also a man who, you know, from a very early age, ran his own crew, uh, had gone to prison, was an OG, as we call them. And so, you know, Mister Daw had had a lot of weight. He had a lot of pull, and so I think the way in which he just introduced me set the tone that folks were going to respect me, right? Um, because I I could imagine if it went the other way, say, "Hey, this is just some guy I met. Uh, why don't you listen up?" It might have been a, a whole different experience. But to that end, right, there was always this interesting dynamic of uh, the work I did because there was this kind of duality in some ways. Um, I've now worked with both adults and, 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 and youth, but for this project, it was it was all adults. And one thing that adults do, at least the adults that I worked with, what, and especially the adult Black men, was that there is this moment when you first meet them where they say, you will get my undivided attention for five minutes. And I want to hear what you're about. I will listen. I will be, pay attention. And I have found that folks who've been incarcerated are sometimes some of the best ethnographers, right? They can cut through the BS. They know if you're for real, if you're genuine, if you are scared, if you are just feeding them a line. And so there was always this interesting kind of challenge to, to me of like, okay, you're here to run this group. What do you got for me? <laughs> and it, was my, it was my five minutes to pitch them and be like, can I capture this audience? Um, but at the same time, there was this protecting of me because there was a lot of these guys who were had done significant amount of time, um, you know, 10 plus years. In some cases, I had a couple individuals who had done 25 plus years and I think one individual who had done like 35 years. I mean, you know, significant amount of of, of time in prison. And for many of them, they they spoke openly about how proud they were of me, being a black man, doing my PhD, um, saying, you know, I could do whatever I want, right? And I chose to focus my energy on being a voice and an advocate for folks who oftentimes don't have a voice. So, you know, I think for, for, for a lot of the, the men who I spoke to, you know, especially as I got to know them over time, because that was the other thing, right? It wasn't like, I was meeting folks for like a one-off, you know, for some of these guys, you know, it was months or years, quite, quite frankly, and that I, that I had been in touch with them on a, on a very regular basis. So we got to know each other, you know, if, um, and you know, and, and, and over time, you know, even my own personal life happenings, you know, we're not. One thousand percent removed from, from you know if I was having a bad day or having a stressful week, you know I had come out you know in some ways and you know I remember talking to some of the older men and in and in some cases even looking to some of the older men as in kind of like a a a, a, a fatherhood role or a or just a, an offering from an elder right and so there was a really there was a really nice synergy that I found there I mean obviously there was. uh that, that incubation time where folks had to be like, okay, is this guy for real? Um, but, you know, over time, you know, I became, I became a part of that that community still as an outsider, right? But an outsider that was, that was allowed a certain level of entree in. And then there was even, and I don't want to like skip ahead here if there's a question, but like there were still things that I was like kind of kept to the outside. But then if I had kind of found out about it, you know it was like a peeling of the onion right and so I was able to kind of and, and that only happened because I was there so often right so there were things that guys weren't telling me but then I would see it so for instance like you know I have a chapter about health we never at, at least I didn't go into the book or go into the project like having this to be a project about re-entry health but you know you're hearing side conversations the weather and you know if it's so cold you know then you start picking up on that or you know guys having you know, cell phones and hiding them in in the building. So all of those things were were things that kind of came out. And uh, you know, just to to that point of the cell phone, I remember when I when I when I saw the guy go get his cell phone and, you know, his first comment or his first statement to me was like, Now you're not gonna tell anybody, right? That was his, you know, my response was no, right? And, you know, and if and it had to be no. It had to be emphatically no. If I was like, oh well, or if I questioned it, you know, that could have been a whole a, a, a whole different uh, you know we've been like oh, okay Smiley's a snitch <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> I, had to, I had to be very careful. Mm-hmm. yeah could, could you just clarify
0: about the cell phones what, what was the rule related to the cell phones in the center just
1: so, so so most of the most of the folks who I spoke to were living in halfway houses and at the time uh, and I don't know what the rules are now but I, I assume that they're fairly the same is that if you're living in a, in a halfway house you're not allowed to have a cell phone so these cell phones were were would be contraband if they tried to bring them into the halfway house where they were where they were living. So um, some of the folks would leave their cell phones and other properties or or things that they wanted in what they would call a safe place or a safe space within the reentry center. So this one gentleman, um, you know, was I think he hit yeah he hid his cell phone in in like the back of a, like a of a filing cabinet right and and um he came in after group he i guess he had, i guess he had assumed everyone had left that room but i was still sitting there and doing my notes or just taking notes and he kind of came in and kind of saw me abruptly and i guess he was like well i'm going for it and so he went and dug in there got it made his phone calls put it back and you know and it was fine but then there were other folks who had cell phones who were were kept in in desk drawers right they were very you know, the, the people who ran the agency knew that folks had cell phones because again, we were also living in the 21st century where pay phones and, you know, other forms of communication or older forms of, you know, were, were just not accessible as they once were. And so, you know, how do you live in the modern world without modern devices? And so, uh, yeah, a lot of folks had cell phones, had clothing, uh, for some of the women, they had makeup, a toiletry bag there. Um, that they didn't feel comfortable like either in the halfway house or for some folks living in a shelter. Right. You know, one guy who, um, in the book, uh, Jerry, uh, he, he had a cell phone. His daughter had given him an, an Apple phone, or, you know, an iPhone and it was stolen out of the shelter. And so, you know, keeping things at the center became a way to, again, navigate and negotiate one's reentry. Um, oh. so Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and of course,
0: people. As you know, I I taught in prison for several years, and before, um, you know, teaching on the outside. And um, people who are incarcerated are famously creative with finding places to hide things because there's a lot of you know, rules and regulations about what kinds of things people who are incarcerated are allowed to have. And so, you know, people who are in prison have found various kind of workarounds to, to manage life on the inside, uh, you know, and dealing with all of these rules and regulations.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, and now, as we move into the second decade of the 21st century, we're seeing even more and more of that ingenuity um, with the proliferation of smartphone devices uh, and and other kind of phones and things that are uh, either smuggled into the facilities or in some instances, you know, uh, things that are allowed being kind of doctored so the guys can get internet. And again, not, not simply for nefarious reasons, but for, in some instances, to... Communicate with family, or or guys who are taking online college courses off their smart device, or, or or trading in Bitcoin, and all of these other kind of really fascinating and you know things that I think you and I, especially as academics, would be intrigued about. That we know isn't you know some uh, evil evil doing, but you know understanding how people sustain reality of their of their life, right, and and, and trying to make sense of really. Uh, horrible circumstances and conditions.
0: Exactly, exactly. And and so your book is a contribution to critical reentry studies. Uh, could you say a little bit about what are the basic perspectives of this approach?
1: Yes. So critical reentry studies is this idea that we have to look at reentry from, as you guess it, a, a critical lens. Right. We cannot just simply. Say that again. People are going to move from point A to point B without taking into the context of both history, policy, and other social constructions in which put people in these positions that they even have to re-enter uh, from uh, you know all to you know to begin with. And so, some of those ideas is to kind of look at the idea of re-entry as part of the overall issue. Of mass incarceration, of what some might refer to as the prison industrial complex, or as others uh, like Doug uh, Doug Tompkins refers to as a prisoner reentry industry, is that there is a kind of building out of a of a of a culture of retribution um, that continues to uh, keep people in these cycles of of both incarceration and reentry. So, critical reentry studies is really trying to understand that. And then lastly, often, and we're seeing a growing number of this, whether people talk about it as critical reentry or not, is that um, you, you know, centering the voices of those who've been system impacted, right? Um, I think a lot of the early reentry work, especially in the early 2000s, while really important to kind of set a foundation in terms of the statistics, the numbers, the, the, what is happening you didn't necessarily have the voices of the people who were experiencing this, right? So, you know, even the, the kind of data that I, I, I posed, right? You know, the fact that the Bureau of Justice Statistics, you know, produced data that said, you know, more people were exiting prison than, than uh, entering prison in 2010. That's a, that's a great number to kind of set as a stage of a platform, but that doesn't really give us the kind of more textured lived experiences of, of what that means for a whole slew of people in the United States, if we think about it, there's roughly 600 to 700 people who are coming out of state and federal prison facilities annually. There is uh, a millions of people who are cycling in and out of jail facilities throughout the country, and all of them are having different reentry experiences. For some, it might be a night in the in the drunk tank, right? You know you you know you get drunk at uh, at at boozy brunch and and you do something stupid and you spend the night there. There were other people who were doing quite literally decades, right? So for instance, um, Sundiata Kolai, who was part of the Black Liberation Army and Black Panthers, you know, he was incarcerated um, in the state of New Jersey for 48 years. I mean, you know, almost a half a century. And what does that look like? What does reentry look like for, you know, uh, a white-collar 20-something-year-old who does a night in the drunk tank versus a now 85-year-old black man who who spent, uh, you know, quite literally, uh, half a century in prison. And so I think critical reentry studies is, is about finding that nuance and telling those stories. Um, and I think they're all deserving of being told, but, um, yeah, I'll say, I'll stop there. Right, sure, sure.
0: And speaking of nuance, um, what was Walter Rodney and um, Manning Marble's um, concept of underdevelopment, and how does it relate to the feelings on the part of the people you studied in Newark uh, that the government there failed their community?
1: Yeah, so I think Walter Rodney, amazing theorist, you know, really thinking through, uh, you know, race and and in colonialism and imperialism and in, in his book uh, how europe underdeveloped africa it talks about this concept of underdevelopment not being that no development happens but that it becomes subpar and it does not stay on pace and for him he's talking about the kind of extractions that europe and you know the united states had had done to to africa particularly during the transatlantic slave trade manning marable builds upon that theoretical framework in his book of how capitalism underdeveloped Black America by again uh, extending that same um, theory to ideas around capitalism and the exploitation of Black folks here in the United States. Uh, you know, through systems of slavery, through systems of um, convict leasing, through systems of Jim Crow segregation, to de facto systems of redlining and gerrymandering that has come have system have. Systematically continue to exploit the black community while gouging them of, of their, you know, money, their politics, their social um, parity with, within within the state. And so, I wanted to build off of their legacy by also using that theoretical framework to think through reentry, because again, people do come out, right? Most. Most people who have been incarcerated, somewhere upwards between ninety to ninety-five percent of all people who are incarcerated in the United States, come out of prison or come out of jail. And so, one of the things that I was thinking through was, well, what does that experience look like in how folks do reentry? And I, I'll talk a little bit more about what what I argue is like doing reentry. But I was I was thinking through the underdevelopment of these communities, particularly places like Newark. In other place, uh, other cities that have been disadvantaged through over police presence, uh, intensified surveillance, um, under resourced um, uh, um, institutions such as hospitals, uh, education, uh, healthcare, etc., and so I come to this idea of underdevelopment in the ways in which the the gentlemen and and women uh, who I speak to in the book. And a lot of them, they they position it in a, in a couple of different ways, and they they think about it as both the community leaders that have been taken from Black communities, and you know a lot of the older gentlemen talk about you know when you look at Black leaders, uh, particularly of the mid twentieth and late twentieth century, how many of them were either assassinated or incarcerated, and how that stops growth in this community. They talk about. The idea of over surveillance and how that kind of stunts people, and you know, particularly um, some of the younger men who I've spoken to, oftentimes their first police encounters had to do with surveillance technology, right? So, police arresting them off of the the statement of, "Well, you were seen on camera," or the camera caught you doing this, and so their first interaction with law enforcement wasn't wasn't even really with a a human being, but, but but with uh, you know, some kind of, uh, technological, uh, advancements as well as, you know, how we think about urban renewal and gentrification. And so, you know, a lot of the guys who I'd spoken to, right. Probably wouldn't consider themselves theorists, but they were, but they were articulating certain ideas. And, in one, one gentleman who, uh, I believe his name in the book, I sometimes get confused myself. I think I, I called him Elijah. You know, he, we were we were walking down the street and he talks about how there was a there was a it was called Brick City Coffee Company. And it and it really took him aback because, you know, when he was growing up in the 80s and 90s and you know, Newark's nickname was Brick City. And that was never seen as this kind of ideal positive thing, but this idea of Brick City being the kind of hardened concrete jungle that creates hardened people. And so for him to see now this kind of coffee barista place with uh, a demographic that catered to uh, mostly commuter white business class folks as a kind of whitewashing or kind of repurposing or reappropriating a term, but keeping this idea of an edginess to it, right? I mean, he he was speaking about urban renewal and gentrification and how you know, the things that are happening in the city, the great things that are happening in the city are not necessarily being done with Newark natives in line, right? So there's been a lot of redevelopment of the downtown Newark with the Prudential Center and J-PAC. Um, Marriott has a hotel down there. There's all, of you know, eateries and things like that. But yet if you go to certain parts of South Ward, Central Ward, West Ward, you know, those places are still very much underdeveloped. There's still dilapidated housing. There's still empty lots with overgrown uh, 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 vegetation, garbage, you know. As, and, you know, and I, Elijah was not really speaking facetiously, but here's a, a man who did, you know, I think 20 or 22 years straight and said, you know, the same abandoned buildings when I went to prison are still abandoned to this day. So where is that development, right? Uh, what's happening? So... You know, boarding up buildings is a a form of development, right? But what we could say is it's an underdevelopment. It's not a a true investment in community.
0: Right, right. Uh, That's very, very, very true. Um, uh, You developed the concept of purgatory citizenship, which is where the the title of your book comes from. Um, What do you intend to capture with this concept?
1: So I came to the idea of purgatory citizenship because the the kind of initial impetus to the, to the to the work even of itself when I started working at the reentry center was I was really interested in that kind of idea of voter disenfranchisement. So I've been thinking about, well what does it mean to to lose your right to vote? Um, was it something that you had exercised before? Was it something you had thought about? But as I was, you know, developing relationships with these guys, um, and, and then these folks, I'll say, Um, it became, it became very clear that it was more than just voting for some voting was a, was a, was a clear indication of something that they had lost or something they had never been able to exercise, but for others, it was how they articulated just their life in general. And there was, um, I believe the gentleman who, who's in the book, uh, called Sharif. And he talks about this idea of that. Once you've been in prison, there's always this kind of limbo feeling where you're, uh, one foot in, one foot out, you always have to be kind of perfect because if you're not perfect, right? The the margin of error, the rope that which you have to mess up is so much shorter and that really in an instance, um, you can be sent back to prison. Your, your freedoms can be taken away. And so there's this constant idea that you have to do re-entry. You have to, you know, reentry is not simply a noun, but it's a verb, right? It's this term that has actionable consequences positive or negative, whether you engage or not engage. And so this idea of purgatory came to me as a, you know, I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic school, K through 12th grade. So the kind of religious idea of of purgatory had always kind of been in my mind my about, you know, you have to atone for a certain amount of sins before you're let into heaven. And so I was seeing that same kind of, Model happened in reentry that a lot of these guys had to atone or engage in a particular in a particular way that highlighted that they were doing re-entry So you know, I had folks who told me, you know, I'm all grouped out, meaning that you know they had they had been in different types of groups in prison, in the halfway house, now the community-based reentry center. But they were like, and it's not that they didn't want to do, it, but they're like, you know, how many times am I going to hear that I was a bad person? and that I just need to do better, right? Or, you know, how many times am I gonna have to sit through, through, through this kind of program? Um, or what programs actually are valued, right? Um, what that, what programs actually have tangible sub- substance behind them versus simply a certificate? And, you know, I think you see that. And, and again, this wasn't people who were ungrateful, but they, but they at some level were seeing the forest for the trees that, you know, having a, a certificate that they engaged in a discussion group, right? Doesn't really have uh, a lot of juice for them, maybe personally, but it has a lot of juice in the, in the eyes of of a judge. Um, And so, yeah, that, that's how I kind of came to the term purgatory citizen was kind of how these folks were really kind of seeing the way that they navigated and negotiated their lives kind of between two worlds. One that was, you know, not, not totally an ELF group, right? Because, you know, if they if these folks who I were talking to were, you know, non-US citizens, they could be deported. Well, they they, they can't be deported. They're they were born here, they were they're naturalized citizens here. Um, and they're not a total in group, right? They still have this kind of ever present, you know, hidden or or um, you know um, hand that could come down and snatch their freedom. Uh, and so, so yeah, they were, they were living in this kind of limbo status and for some, you know, they were very honest. They didn't know when that would end. Um, right. And that, right. And that it's possible potentially
0: anyway, that this limbo status may be, you know, their fate for their entire life. That, that, that until, until they die, they'll always be in this state of limbo, not quite in prison, but also not quite you know, 100% free on the outside either.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, for some of the the men in particular who I spoke to, some of them had life with parole, right? Meaning that even when they were let out, part of their being released stipulation was that they had parole for the remainder of their life. You know, and I think it was Melvin at the beginning of the book, you know, his parole ends, uh, you know, according to New Jersey Department of Corrections website, like December 31st, 2,999, right? You know, almost the, you know, almost a millennia away. Uh, and it's just you know, a it's you know, and it's, it's mind boggling. It's also kind of ridiculous to see, right? But it's so, it's so much part of the, of the larger kind of uh, retributive and punishment system that we have that we all know that this man is nobody, anyone listening to this podcast, there's no one on this podcast who's going to be Alive in two thousand nine hundred ninety nine. Right, if you're alive today, listening to this, you're not going to be. So to even have that as as, but it just it just is. It's a kind of just kind of like this further punishment, just to, to like really make sure that this person knows that you will never be outside of the grips of the criminal legal supervision.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Just to riff for a second, you mentioned about your. Catholic background and the religious imagery, you know, um, uh, and how you came to this term, uh, purgatory citizenship. And it's interesting because in a way, when you were describing about um, uh, uh, Melvin and his millennium long, you know, uh, um, uh, sentence or, you know, whatever stipulation for his um, um, uh, probation, you know, it almost sounds like a religious Dictate because again, if you think of a you know, sociologist, we think about the you know, the bureaucratic state as a uh, you know, in the modern uh, uh, um, you know, uh, government, we think of a secular institution that works according to kind of a secular logic. You know, from that perspective, it makes no sense to give someone or to even write down that someone has a millennium log, uh, you know, uh, uh um, um, role. Yeah. Uh, parole like it's an absurdity like it it just doesn't make sense but if you think about it from a sort of religious perspective it's like saying you're going to hell like you you will be in this you know for a thousand years like like it, it really does it seems to me make a lot more sense from a kind of religious in a kind of um from a religious lens or in a religious valence rather than in a secular uh, um democracy
1: Yeah. And, you know, and and this book is not, you know, and I'm not like a religious studies scholar, but there's certainly overlay here that we can see. And and even how folks even think about their time, because, you know, that was also part of the the doing reentry was, you know, kind of asking folks like, do you think that, you know, you know, say someone lives to be 90 plus years old? Are they going to have to still go to parole, you know, meetings? Are they still going to do check ins? And, you know, for a lot of them, they were they were optimistically cautious that, you know, they hope that, you know, eventually their parole officer would just forget about that. Right. And because, because, you know, there's so many other restrictions when you're on, um, this kind of legal supervision it it restricts where you can go. So it's your mobility, who you can be around. So your, your networks and friend groups, the types of jobs you can have, which is your economics, your places where you might be able to live or not live. So, you know, just your whole kind of Identity can be wrapped up in this, and you know, for for folks who, are especially of a certain age, right? I mean, it's really hard to start over. Right, right, sure.
0: And 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 I I could uh, just um, uh, add to that I, again. When I was teaching in uh, um, college courses in New Jersey State Prisons, um, some of my students were in their their sixties or seventies. I mean, these were older men, you know, some of whom, um, you know, clearly had a hard time walking across the room. I mean, they were, you know, just debilitated. Um, um, I don't know what their condition was when they came into prison 30, 40 years ago, but, uh, uh, obviously prison didn't help them to, to stay in, you know, any kind of, you know, moderately healthy, you know, state and, and, I remember thinking at the time that it just seemed so absurd that the, 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 the state of New Jersey was spending thousands and thousands of dollars to incarcerate people who were told by, you know, implication that these are dangerous criminals. These are people who are going to, you know, uh, if let loose, going to do you know, uh, uh, potential damage to people in, in, in society these people could barely cross literally could barely cross you know could could get across the room like these are people who you know maybe needed to be in a, in a retirement center in a in a in a you know a elderly care facility you know they were they weren't a threat to anyone their biggest threat was falling and breaking a hip you know and and I, again for me I and Yes, I, I, you know, I'm a sociologist, and I also uh, have a, a particular focus on religion, and I think a lot about religion and and religious uh, imagery and and uh, influence in our society in general, and I think some of the The treatment of people both in terms of, of, of when they're in prison and also when they're released from prison some of the way that they're treated makes a lot more sense if you think about it from a religious kind of punitive perspective that we're going to punish this person till their dying day rather than thinking of it from any kind of legal or ethical or logical or security perspective. Agreed.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, so that's that. Um, um, let's see. There's so much to talk about. We're gonna we're gonna run out of time soon. So let's see what we could. Um, let's see what we could get to. Um, so here, um, let's talk about this. Um, what recent legal reforms has the state of New Jersey enacted, and how have these reforms fallen short of creating uh,
1: transformative change? Uh, great question. So New Jersey, along with other states like New York, are are kind of seen right now as some of the models in terms of uh, reform. And um, and New Jersey in particular has been, has been kind of carrying out reform since the, you know, at least the way I'm positioned it since the early 2000s, right? You know, in 2007, Governor uh, John Corzine who was a Democrat. He abolished the death penalty. And you know, for no other reason other than, you know, the New Jersey anti-death penalty campaign did the report and was like, you're going to save millions of dollars a year by just not having a, 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 a death house anymore. And so they signed that into law. Um, and so, you know, the New New Jersey has taken those, those actions with, you know, no longer having the death penalty. We saw in the Republican, Chris Christie, that he was, um, you know, open to the idea that, you know, not to kind of bring back a new kind of war on drugs with the opiate crisis. Um, there's been a lot of criticisms that, that was largely due to the fact that the opiate crisis was impacting suburban white middle-class neighborhoods, not necessarily low-income poor black communities, but, you know, I would still take that as a win that, you know, we didn't expand the, 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 the prison system with that. And more recently with Governor Phil Murphy, who is a Democrat, um, we've seen him sign into legislation at the end of 2019 that New Jersey residents under parole and probation can now vote before that from um, the mid-1800s till 2019. Anyone under um, any form of criminal, ju- criminal justice supervision in the state of New Jersey was barred from voting. We've also seen that during the COVID-19 pandemic, that New Jersey was one of the kind of leading states that uh, uh, released uh, about 2,500 people from its prisons, understanding that this infection was uh, 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 rapidly spreading, especially in the, in the prisons. And we've also seen in the last decade that uh, New Jersey has been one of the leading states of bail reform, right? Um, it often gets o- uh, overshadowed by New York's, bail reform and, and how the politics of that. But, you know, because of New Jersey's bail reform, we've seen the state prison population almost half, right? So from uh, roughly around 25, 26,000 people incarcerated to roughly about 12 to 13,000 people in, in the state prison system. So all of those are great things in terms of reform. And, and you know, and I, I do applaud the the efforts that that groups and in um, particularly group, grassroots activists uh, and others who pressured the politicians. I never think that the you know the politicians just do it out of a, a out of a certain altruism, but certainly through through a um, uh, uh, a pressured kind of uh, uh, mandate by their constituents who say we would like to see these things change. Where I have my criticism is that while the numbers have diminished, the populations that are still the most impacted by incarceration within the state of New Jersey remain the same. So over the last decade, um, the, the county of commitment, right? The county that leads the way in incarceration remains Essex County where Newark, New Jersey is the racial breakdown of New Jersey's in, in prison incarceration hovers between 59 to 61%, depending on the year of black folks. Um, Black folks in the state of New Jersey make up about 14%. So it is a super lopsided disparity between what the state composition of race is compared to the state prison system. In fact, New Jersey is one of, and uh, last time I checked, it was the leading state in the country of racial disparity with a roughly 12.1 black to white ratio ratio. Of incarcerated people. So in, in essence, the New Jersey prison system is, is, is black, right? It is, it is a black, um, center. And it's, and it's, uh, and so when we think about that, if the state population is only 14% of black people, uh, were mainly coming from certain areas of the state, Essex County, Camden County, parts of Hudson County, Passaic County, Union County, you know I mean? They're not mostly coming from Cape May or, Gloucester or or Salem County, we see what, you know, Louis week talks about this kind of deadly symbiosis where, you know, America's urban centers, America's ghettos start to look like our prisons and our prisons start to look like our ghettos. And so the same people who are being disadvantaged even before they get in trouble with the criminal justice system are now in trouble with the criminal justice system and then being released back into those same neighborhoods that are under-resourced, over-policed, over-monitored through surveillance. And so my challenge is that I don't think that we can reform our ways out of this, because what we've seen is that reform can, yes, shrink the numbers, but the concentration remains the same. And so I would argue, and then I advocate for, is that we have to rethink how we even want to deal with justice, and that's where uh, my politics on abolition comes from is that that these systems were intended to be set up for disparity, for social stratification that very much mirror race, class and gender lines. Right. Because that's who we see across the country in New Jersey um, of who's incarcerated. If you are black, minority, low income coming from a a particular zip code, your likelihood of ending up in these in these uh, um, facilities. Is at a much higher rate than if you are something else and so my argument or my challenge is that we really need to rethink what justice looks like and then after we rethink justice you know how do we then get to that goal and i i tend to like to think of my abolition politics is that we have to start with the hardest problem right you know i think why so many people are invested no i know i know i I think so many people are invested in criminal justice because People, um, crime is emotional. Harm is emotional. Violence sucks, right? People are impacted by violence. Um, And so we have to kind of get at the root of what is causing that violence. Is it poverty? Is it other social cycle, um, um, you know, disabilities or accessibility issues? Uh, Are there there lack of outlets for people to get this? No, we have to kind of do that. We have to stop kind of having more of a reactive stance where, you know, police just go out and arrest the bad guy. Well, you're only technically a bad guy after you commit a crime. So how do we have a system that is more proactive that, you know, the folks who are incarcerated get the the resources, the help, the facilities that they need before going to prison even becomes an option in their lives? And so I often think of it as that it's never a situation of, can we do this, but will we do this, right? You know, we often hear that things like affordable, clean, safe housing, equitable education, uh, universal healthcare, or pipe dreams, right, that these are things that, you know, cannot happen. Yet we have money, right? I mean, we know that there is money out there for for war. We know that there is money out there to bail out banks. We know that there's money out there to rebuild uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral. I think in less than 24 hours, a billion dollars was raised to, to, you know, fix from the fires that 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 the cathedral had had experienced. And I think that that's part of the the kind of hurdle that we have to go. We have to kind of reorient our our culture again away from retribution to one of care. And again, this is not an overnight fix. I, I don't think that this is going to happen by next Tuesday. But I think that we have to start making those incremental changes to fundamentally shift our position into uh, one that that cares about people rather than just says well let's further harm people and that's what prison and by extension reentry does. It, it further harms people and so you know I talk about in chapter I think four which I call the body which is that going leaving prison doesn't mean that you leave all the things that you've experienced in prison behind if you've been cut across your face and you have a big gnarly scar growing across, that doesn't get rubbed off. Right? that is something that you now have to live with so the violence that you might have experienced now is going to maybe impact your romantic life it might impact your professional life um, the things the traumas that you witnessed right the the ptsd that you know how now now have doesn't just get taken away and as we all know in the united states healthcare is pretty crummy and so unless you have really good health care that covers mental health or psychologist, or having a psychiatrist, you might not be able to even um, professionally seek out help for those traumas that you've experienced. So what do people do? They, they self-medicate. They cope in other ways. They don't know how to cope. So their anger, their frustration comes out in an explosive, unhealthy manner. And so, again, we see how these these, these systems perpetuate those punishments.
0: Right, right. Well, oh, thank you for all of that. This is, gives us so much to think about. I really want to thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.